Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Esperanto revivalist Gerasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This week, I have only just barely restrained myself from getting into building keyboards. And I'm kind of into that. This is a podcast where <laughs> me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our weeks with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be finishing part two of We by Yevgeny Zemyatin. But before we get into that, we've got a couple podcast updates. We wanted to give a quick shout out to our three new patrons. What? Three? Crazy. Uh, we got Daniel, Darren, and also Daniel, uh, a second Daniel. And we were going to differentiate you by last name initials, but they're both D. So um, maybe send us in some more identifying information, such as social security numbers. And then, uh, you know, people can differentiate you from that. <laughs> Um, we recently redesigned our Patreon tiers, so go give them a look at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy if you want to learn about how to get your hands on some of our sweet, sweet merch, some of our behind-the-scenes content, and maybe have Cameron host a Soviet-themed game of Call of Cthulhu for us. Uh, we also have some some new merch coming out. We've got some some tote bags. We've got some coffee mugs with all of our cool designs that we had an artist commissioned to make, which is super exciting. And if you don't really feel like supporting us financially, but you do like the podcast like a little bit, or maybe just, you know, it's not the right time, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, that is a super helpful way to help us. Yeah, a lot of good financial stuff, but I did want to go back to the Call of Cthulhu thing for a moment, and Matt's dead serious when he says it's a Soviet-themed oh, yeah. one. I have a whole mm -hmm. module for uh, NKVD agents investigating a sudden grain shortage, uh, which... Um, frankly, the fact that only this one stumbled across some kind of cosmic horror while study while um investigating grain shortages is nothing short of a miracle. Based on how many of those there were, <laughs> which I think this module is implying was caused by cosmic mm -hmm. horror. But mm -hmm. yes, so <laughs> many many updates. But before we get into the reading, Matt, what are you drinking today? Well, I got shamed in the in our Discord channel for drinking, and I quote, can there be a Patreon tier specifically dedicated to buying Matt a proper drink instead of a hipster beer? So I have been shamed into just drinking vodka and sparkling water, <laughs> which is perhaps still a hipster drink. I don't know. I can't be I can't be separated from my identity. <laughs> I actually hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, read a text my dad sent me after he listened to that episode. Which episode? Why did it, it evoke such reactions? Peanut butter whiskey sounds wrong, exclamation mark. But at the same time, dot, 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 I'm intrigued, thinking emoji. I thought your dad was really about <laughs> so, to come for me in that text message, but he had the exact same <laughs> the exact same reaction that I did at the store, which was like, I don't like this, but I am intrigued by it. And it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough about my shameful drinking habits. What are you drinking this week? <laughs> uh, this week, I am drinking a stout called fudge it it's a pastry stout which i've actually never heard of before uh by the hermitage hmm. brewing company which nice and nice. relevant ish uh petersburg is in russia yes russia the russia? theme of our podcast about that's it. relevant Think about it <laughs> uh it's very sweet overall so very fun to drink uh it's really getting me amped up to talk about math please i'm, I'm done to hear your <laughs> done to hear your summary about part two 
Yes, normally we would be providing some context, but if you've listened to part one, which I really hope you have, if you're listening to part two of a book, otherwise uh, you're a level of chaotic, which I can't compete with. (laughs) So we're going to get right into the story itself, because the second half of We, similar to the first half, is of course comprised of uh, short diary entries. However, they get shorter and shorter, and it's just a lot of like one and a half page entries for the last like 70 pages of the book, which is... Mm -hmm. A little bit hard to summarize at times, so we're going to do our best to, to do a general one. Unlike last week, I'm going to try to avoid making my quote-unquote brief summary 13 minutes long. Hey, sometimes you do what you have to. <laughs> yeah. As we left off last week, D503 is with O90. Uh, he kind of has a moment of almost ego death before eventually kind of coming to, and he kind of floats on for a few days. Actually, it's an unknown period of time. I don't know exactly where where the book cuts, but there is a time skip somewhere in here, which they do not make clear and you don't recognize until later. But I think it might be here, if anything, if at any point it is. In the next chapter, uh, D-503 tries to assure himself uh, that he has a right to be punished by the state. And then he thinks back on that and says, well, no, actually, rights are for children. Those are for ancients. We have something better than a right. We have being right, not just having the concept of a right. Uh, and, and makes a comparison between rights and power, which I think is actually an interesting point, before going on to search for I-330. I-330, of course, is still nowhere to be found. It's been days and days, maybe weeks or months, and he has not heard anything from her besides the occasional pink slip from a go-between, uh, which leads to him closing his blinds while he's actually alone in his apartment. It's fine. She's having a revolutionary girls' weekend. <laughs> Let her live, you know? <laughs> yeah, so while she's out having her revolutionary girls' weekend, uh, <laughs> D <laughs> goes to the ancient house again. And while there, he actually happens to run into S. While looking at S, uh, a number of Guardian's arrows fly overhead, and S kind of tells him he, he should be careful. Uh, at this point, D begins to interact with a woman with a woman named Yu, who I thought for a solid like 15 chapters was fictional, <laughs> just a figment <laughs> of his imagination. It turns out she's totally real. Um, yeah, yeah. It the first time you meet her, it's it's almost metaphysical. She can, kind of disappears halfway through the, the paragraph, so it seems like she was just a figment of his imagination. But she's real. I think he just doesn't consider her humanity at all because he doesn't consider anyone's humanity because that's the society. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we live in we live in a mathematical society. <laughs> we ladies, we live in a mathematical <laughs> society, if I may. <laughs> um. So he goes on about his life. One day, a woman kind of breaks from the crowd. She runs off, and he thinks, this is I-330. And he runs after her before realizing this is, in fact, not her. And the guards take him down, bring him into custody, and he has to explain his way out of stepping out of line during, you know, collaborative walking time. And eventually, he actually meets up with I-330 again. However, this comes to the slight caveat that he's also with you at the time, but she kind of disappears in the middle of this interaction, which is kind of why I thought she was a figment of his imagination. Uh, but I-330 and D talk, they debate a little bit, and I kind of explains that she's testing him. That's why she's been gone for so long. And she asks him, will you follow me no matter what? D says, yes, of course I will. And then she tells him there's a plan involving Integral his ship. Following this, we begin to approach the day of the one vote. The day of the one vote is when everyone gets together and re-elects the benefactor. The benefactor is the person, or the cipher really, who makes society run as it does. And it's a joyous celebratory occasion where everyone gets together and votes openly for him. And 
even at this point, uh, D is really excited for this because <laughs> this is a joyous moment for them all as they come together as one and then choose their path forward. And of course, they all vote the same way, or at least is intended that they all vote the same way. And briefly, he thinks about old elections, which were held in secret. Um, and he writes, Even today, it is not understood conclusively. The likeliest explanation is that elections were connected to some sort of mystical, superstitious, maybe even criminal rights. For us, there is nothing to hide, and nothing to be ashamed of. We celebrate election day in the daytime, openly and honestly. However, when election day rolls around, uh, the slight problem of I-330 and her people arise, in which after the benefactor asks who votes for me, essentially, and a lot of people rose their hands in the thousands, he asks, um, and who votes against me continuing to be the benefactor? And some number of people raise their hand against, which is unheard of at this point. The whole crowd breaks into pandemonium. I-330 is standing by R-13, who, if you'll recall, is Dee's friend, the poet. Dee gets really angry seeing that, and when he when the crowd erupts into pandemonium, he runs over to them <laughs> and straight up clocks R-13, <laughs> and, and like Tarzan style takes I-330 into his arms and runs off, which uh, bold moves for a nerdy ship designer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd say. <laughs> the next day, the state declares that was all... Everyone who voted no is illegitimate because obviously you cannot be a member, a cipher of our society and vote against the benefactor. So, well, that's a good point if you think about it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, if you voted against our glorious leader, um, it doesn't make you kind of an illegitimate person. So, he was elected unanimously. However, at the same time, many posters with the name Mephi have been posted around the city, including on the integral itself. Some days later, D meets I at a fairly discreet place, and they kind of head off. And about a day later, they end up outside the Green Wall, in the forest area where D realizes that a number of people have actually survived the Great War, and are living out here, out in the forest. And an interesting thing is this is the first time we really get people described not in kind of his idiosyncratic mathematical way of doing so, but actually in relatively human terms of people having hair or not having hair or the fact that they aren't wearing clothing or the fact that this is a relatively racially diverse group of people which sick that was <laughs> knocked it over right at that point <clears throat> oh no a relatively diverse group of people which we have no idea if that's reflected in the one state itself or not uh, following that d again is meeting with you in the evening and then suddenly i arrives i asks you to leave uh U is not super into that but d is like Get out of my apartment, basically. Um, and later on, the Guardians approach, D covers for I, and he kind of throws the trail off of you. Later on, D is going back to the ancient house, still not seeing I again. I really drops in and out of his life. I suspect at this point there's more than one day between each of these uh, entries mm -hmm. because when D is going to the ancient house, he runs into O. And at this point, he mentions that O is very heavily pregnant. And keep in mind, only maybe... Ten chapters ago, he and O had conceived the child together, so there's a, a big jump in time somewhere along this scale. D offers to take her to I, because keep in mind that uh, having a child without registering it is punishable. Uh, well, is a punishable offense, and any punishable offense in this society is death. So he basically offers to save her, and she tells him, no, I'm going to do things my own way. Don't even bring up I to me. Uh, following that, I explains more about the plans to take the Integral 2D. Uh, it's They have kind of a debate over whether or not this is really the right course of action and the meaning of 
infinity and finiteness and, and the infinite revolution that people go through. The days kind of pass until finally the day of the integral test launch happens, and I and all of her people have secretly snuck on to the integral itself, which D recognizes as he is uh, directing this test flight. He is carefully arranged for there to be enough fuel for the ship itself to break atmosphere and actually go out far into space, and it's just a matter of releasing the right command at the right time. However, while they're doing that, a person stands up and announces to D, basically, we know what you're doing, uh, and we're going to stop you. So either take the ship back down, or we're going to use more extreme methods. And D complies. I is understandably pissed. In the following days, D is angry. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks it, it could only have been you. Only she could have come to my room and read my work and told someone what had happened. And at the same time, <laughs> while he's trying to kill you, actually, uh, he reads a newspaper and now the one state is announcing that everyone is going to get a great operation in order to make, a, make ourselves more mechanically able and less imaginative. So mass lobotomies, essentially. So it's kind of hard to tell, but I, we think that D ends up at Yu's apartment, and he intends to kill her with a pipe. And in the moment that he's in there, she's alone, he closes the blinds, he is raising the pipe, fully ready to kill her. She deeply misinterprets what's going on and says, okay, fine, let's do it, and takes, starts taking her clothing off. And D realizes how deeply she's misinterpreted this, this situation, because closing the blinds has such a connotation in the society that he peels out into laughter and says i killed her in my mind but before i even had a chance to leave actually i get a call and the benefactor asks for my presence the leader of this one state society d goes and he debates with the benefactor and it really ends up with the benefactor putting forth the ideology which d had believed at the beginning of the book until the benefactor says to d don't you know that you're actually just being used by these people i is only interested in you because of your position as the builder of the integral at that point, D realizes how simple everything is. Everything is so majestically banal and so simple. It is most funny. And he looks up at the benefactor and realizes this is just a sweaty old man. He's literally sweaty, balding. <laughs> He's not an impressive figure, as the massive statue which represents him would have you believe. At that point, D runs out of the room and just collapses in the street crying for his mother. Not the idea of his mother but a real living human being who he is a part of who he has never known and will never know in the following days doomsday comes the number of mephi who are eyes people around the city begin a small-scale revolution uh, they destroy the green wall things are not going well for the one state and uh, d503 can't find i he goes to her her room and he finds all the pink tickets, which summon him. And eventually she shows up. And they have a discussion. And they sleep together before I leaves. And it's kind of a weird moment where D, the whole time, is thinking about what the benefactor has told him. That I is only contacting you because of your position with the integral. And there's a moment where the relationship kind of breaks. When she begins to leave, he doesn't even bother saying goodbye to her. She does the same to him. Essentially, they have both kind of acknowledged the completion of their relationship in this regard. And she walks out. Days later, in the next entry, we find out that D, following these events, was actually taken in by the Guardians in Lobotomized. In the following days, he tells everything he knows to the Benefactor and the Guardians, and eventually, one by one, I and her people are captured. He notes that I herself is subjected to the Bell Jar, which is not made clear but implied to be 
basically a suffocation device several times without telling anything, although some of her people uh, barely take it once before they give up all the information, uh, and all of them are condemned to death. Dee, now lobotomized, is quite happy that he is able to once again reintegrate into a mechanical society, and he knows that despite the rebellion going on, they will eventually win, because logic will always win. Yeah, it really takes a turn there at the end, doesn't it? Yeah, a hard, hard turn. It it does. I think I still like it, though. I, the, the ending what I thought was still good when I finished it the second time. The book was a lot more uh, scattered on my second read-through than it was on my first. I felt like you were kind of saying during the summary where I was just like, wait, where is he? What is he doing? How many days have passed since he last wrote? Which I guess is probably accurate to a diary writing experience in a dystopian state right and especially in the latter half i think he gets much more abstract with his writing and will sometimes fade from a very concrete scene into something almost dreamlike and you can't really tell if the concrete scene was real at all or if he's just stopping attention to what's happening or like use entire existence who has been introduced only in the second half of the book mm-hmm. and is heavily implied to be in love with him I, I just I know she's real because she has a physical presence in the book, but I really just can't the shake I really can't shake the feeling that she's not because she's never even given a full number. She's just you, yeah, and she comes and goes as she pleases, and only once interacts with another character. Yeah, that's interesting. Or twice, I mean, actually, I didn't pick up on that, but I mean, it's it's plausible. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, oh, actually, comes back to D and asks for his help, and he sends her to I. And she gets out. She gets beyond the green walls. Mm-hmm. So she's probably the only one out of this entire group who gets a good ending, really. And I kind of read you as almost a kind of a cheap replacement for O because O, I mean, not that you herself was bad in any way, but O over the course of the book, even independent of having I force her hand, just begins to feel human things and wants to escape the society. Whereas you kind of occupies a similar space to O, at least initially. Mm-hmm in Dee's life, but she maintains her course steadfast. And she's a teacher, she believes in the one state, and when the great operation happens, she brings all of her students yeah. and notes that a lot of them fought back, but sometimes in order to do a great kindness, you must do great cruelty. Yeah. So she is a version of O who never second guesses herself. Mm-hmm. At least that's kind of how I saw her. Yeah, I mean, O in the end, she gets to reproduce, basically. Uh, on, on the other side of the wall and gets to do something uh, hopefully productive in the future. I think that's part of the ending that I liked is that it is a, a little bit hopeful. I mean, it's a little bit chilling when he says reason or logic will win. But I think as a reader, you can see that that's not necessarily the case, that there is an actual civil war happening inside the state, that there are people beyond the wall that are growing in number and unable to be, I don't know, subdued by the state, basically. Um, and, and even right. within the state, the fact that I doesn't give up any of her accomplices is pretty remarkable and slightly, slightly hopeful, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not really making this point, but you can easily read that even if I is to die, even though D has been lobotomized, and even if all of these collaborators end up being killed in the benefactor's execution ceremony, there's still a civil war and there's still a whole world outside of the one state. And for all we know as the reader, the... Mephi, the world outside of the one state, is so much bigger than it could ever imagine, Mm -hmm. simply because it refuses to even understand it. In like a funny way, the title we ends up applying to the Mephi group at the end where you can kill one of them, but their collective is stronger than any one individual. 
as opposed right. to the one state which really relies on the benefactor and his let's say nkvd equivalents <laughs> um insightful that the nkvd was not not non-existent at this point when Zimyatin was actually writing it, but definitely not nearly as widespread as it would be in the Soviet Union. So, although I will say that the Guardians are uh, comically incapable in light of a reality <laughs> and b at this point, dystopia has been so written about that. Frankly, even like YA literature has more <laughs> realistic and believable secret police than than we does. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. this was written before all of that, so this certainly can't be held against it in any way. I think it's actually incredible because I think if you were an American in let's say like a high school maybe context reading this book, maybe even early college, and you didn't know what year this was written, you'd be like, yeah, this was definitely written about Stalin. That's got to be it. And you realize that this was written like decades before that. It's super interesting. I mean, like the voting scene to me, it really shows the completion of the erosion between public and private life, which... Right. You see throughout everything from the blinds up, sex being regulated. That's a very big, a, a very big debate happening in the 20s in general in the Soviet Union uh, mm -hmm. on sex and on just like the relationship between public and private life. But when it comes to voting, uh, the, the fact that the narrator is ridiculing our way of voting by secret ballot is, I mean, that's one of the moments where you're just like, wow, this is something Right. Their understanding is that secret ballots could have a, a almost a cultish occult <laughs> uh, <laughs> symbolism to it. Yeah. Rather than they are free and happy and open elections, mm -hmm. which Zimyatin is obviously making fun of. Uh, <laughs> little did he know. Little did he know. You know, I had a when we were in Russia, I had a professor who, um, you know, he said they were required to vote. They weren't required to vote a certain way. It was just that the departments were like, you need to vote. Um, and this, he was like, yeah, so just for fun, I re-registered in Moscow and made sure they went and voted across the street while staring at the Kremlin, um, which <laughs> is powerful energy. It is. I, I was just kind of reflecting on the the rationale and the logic, quote unquote, that goes into rationalizing the behavior of the one state. And I, I think it's it's really an interesting situation that exists when people think that y you can use logic. Uh, as a as a neutral way to come to a decision, when in fact this book uh, is quite clearly making the case that you cannot. Um, and D five hundred three is using a, a situation that's basically calling on notes from the underground to make this case. He says, "I I feel myself, but it's only the eye with a lash in it, the swollen finger, the infected tooth that feels itself is conscious of its own individual being. The healthy eye or finger or tooth." doesn't seem to exist so it's clear isn't it self-consciousness is just a disease um and he is agreeing with dostoevsky though in the negative ultimately he is agreeing sometimes you want to feel that tooth ache and just to feel that you are in fact an individual um but instead he's turning that on its head and saying that if you like that there's something wrong with you that needs to be cured you know thought i'd sprinkle in a little notes from the underground because i think this book draws on the intellectual tradition of notes from the underground and then Chernyshevsky's what is to be done pretty heavily. Which is a context you might understand better next week. Next week, just wait. Just you wait until <laughs> we cover that book. <laughs> Please validate our suffering. Please. <laughs> <laughs> we did not know that book was 400 pages when we dedicated ourselves to reading it in one week. 
yeah, that was a mistake, but hey, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Well, so that was like one thing that I picked out that I thought was kind of cool and connects to a couple things we've talked about before. And I, I kind of wanted to focus on a conversation that Dee and I have later in the book uh, around chapter 30, where they begin to debate infinity. You know, Dee is asking I, what is the point of all of this? Why are we even doing this? We've kind of reached the final state of human society. And then I looks at him and says, finally, she approaches him on his own ground kind of, and she asks him, what's the final number? And he's taken aback by this. What do you mean? What's the final number? There is no final number. Not as far as we can calculate. And then she says to him, yeah, exactly. There is no final number, such as there is no final revolution. Uh, she says exactly, well, which final revolution do you want then? There isn't a final one. Revolutions are infinite. Final things are for children, because infinity scares children. And it is important that children sleep peacefully at night. I thought it was a, an interesting way that Zemyatin is able to integrate a, an alternate mathematical logic, and that a lot of what this one state is driven on is a coldly mathematical logic. And, uh, however... I is able to expose the fact that it is not purely logical in that regard, because it's not like this is the one true mathematical logic. It's this is a logic which we have applied into this situation, which coldly follows our otherwise already arrived at assumptions, whereas she is able to use yeah. that same yeah. knowledge base in order to challenge the very assumptions which D and the benefactor and society as a whole have placed over themselves as this as this must be true. I think this is probably the core of the book. I would say the single most important passage of the book. I, I highlighted the crap out of this section. I think that like goes to the point of my last point about logic, which is just that it's not it's not neutral. Right. And I, I know I, I recently made a tweet making fun of myself uh, for saying everything is very Tolstoyan, but it kind of is if you think about it. <laughs> like... I, Tolstoy is this interesting thing that I've been noticing as I've been rereading some of his stuff. It, a lot of his characters will use logic to justify things that they already believe or already want to do hmm. uh, as his critique of people who are like rational thinkers, you know? Uh, I think that's kind of what's happening here in a lot of ways. Uh, not just the core underlying assumption, but even like the rhetorical devices that she's using in the argument. It's kind of fun. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe if you're... Not D five hundred three. That wouldn't be that much fun for him. He's getting slapped down in the argument, but you know, for us, it's good from the outside. Good from the outside. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is overall the point that I is making. I think is a, a not an uncommon one at this point in time. I mean, Oscar Wilde makes that same point in um, the Soul of a Man. Um, this is, I think, something that was not necessarily. That, I'm not saying that Zemyatin was reading Oscar Wilde. Uh, however, this general thought pattern in relation to socialism specifically, I think, mm -hmm. is an interesting one in relation to more industrial uh, socialist thought, I will say. Mm -hmm. Right, because if you read A Soul of a Man, Oscar Wilde, having embraced socialism, gets very into, can you imagine a society where an inspector comes by your house every day at 8 a.m. to make you get up and go to work? Uh, which is not how the Soviet Union worked. Uh, <laughs> however, <laughs> labor was still... Uh, a very huge part, in fact, maybe the main feature of Soviet society. Kind of, if you are reading a lot of socialist theorists, you can kind of see a tension between these two. And especially in this era, it's much stronger before you actually get into the hard industrialization of the USSR. Which, of course, was extant at this time. There were people who were pushing for that, uh, who wanted society to, to be measured not by emotions, but rather by barometers. 
which is what Zamyatin is kind of making fun of here. Maybe hoping that their power would be limited in the future, not realizing how thoroughly that would uh, become a feature uh, of Soviet society in the far future. I think it's still important to note that he wrote this like between 1920 and 1921. So it's still, the Soviet Union is still trying to figure itself out. I mean, you still have, you have a lot of different ideas at this point. It's not the totalizing Stalinist influence that some people think that all years of the Soviet Union were. There were a lot of thoughts going back and forth at this point. And Simyatin definitely had an opinion. Not a popular one, as it turned out uh, later. Well, when the book was banned. Yeah. 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 Speaking of, I kind of want to jump into the conversation with the benefactor. This is really short. It's only maybe a page or two long. Um, But this is the point where I suddenly understood why George Orwell accused Aldous Huxley of basically ripping off (laughs) we. Because the conversation between the benefactor roughly parallels the conversation between the main character's name escapes me, but the main character of Brave New World and Mustafa Mond. However, that being said, that's a comparison of, um, I, I don't think we have any evidence that Aldous Huxley ever read We, so it's a comparison of someone taking like a little feature of a story and then using it in their own story. And Orwell's 1984 to We, which is more so Orwell stealing We's very skeleton and then putting his own stolen flesh onto it and then making it move around like a flesh golem. And then blaming other writers for doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> so... <laughs> When the benefactor begins to speak to D, he basically defends the way the one society works. And D is hearing this and thinking, I can't believe that I used to think like that. However, you can kind of follow the logic of why the the benefactor designs society in this way. In fact, this is not entirely dissimilar. Um, It's like a two-page version, I think, of the Inquisitor from the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, Of course, Dostoevsky is really not on the side of the Inquisitor in the end. He's really good at taking on another point of view to make that point strongly, despite him really wanting to bat it down. In this case, the benefactor is making that point unironically, that humanity does not actually want freedom. Humanity prefers chains. What he points to is the previously dominant religion, at least in Russia, uh, Christianity. What he says to him is this, the most merciful Christian, God himself, slowly burning all the recalcitrants in the fires of hell. Is he not an executioner? And were there really fewer burnt at the stake by the Christians uh, rather than Christians who were burned themselves? And yet, understand this, and yet, they glorified this god as a god of love. Absurd? (laughs) No, the opposite. It is a testimony written in blood to the irreducible good sense of a human. Even then, wild, shaggy as they were, they understood. True algebraic love towards humankind is inhuman, and the sure sign of truth is its cruelty. Like fire, the sure sign of fire is that it burns. The benefactor is making the point to D that really, using again the an implicit parallel to Adam and Eve, freedom really only brings unhappiness, and humanity demands happiness. They are demanding the shackles which the benefactor is putting upon them. And ultimate happiness, like in heaven, in heaven... People have no wants, they have no desires, they have only happiness. And he is attempting to achieve that on Earth through this 
mass operation, through the great operation, in fact, the removal of the imagination, and the fact that people can only find happiness in production at that point forward. Dee dismisses this out of hand. He thinks, I can't believe this is the way I used to think. That being said, it's never pushed back upon. This is a, I will call it a coherent logic, because you can see how someone would follow that. Um, you can see how someone might begin to build a great lie to build a society upon, which, again, this is where you start finding more parallels to Brave New World in terms of building society in one great lie in order to create happiness. Uh, but I think it's really interesting that the benefactor is, when it comes down to it, able to put forward a coherent argument for why he does what he does, and although it's on its face ridiculous, you can follow the logic, and you can see how someone might actually come to that conclusion. It's... It was a good conversation. It, it goes with a lot of what we were talking about for the second half of the book. Yeah. I think. In response, D thinks there's no reason to really respond to all this talk. <laughs> Everything is so simple. It is so banal and so simple. And he looks up at this older man who's intensely and frankly, weirdly sweaty. Such a sweaty boy. <laughs> Such a sweaty boy. He <laughs> runs off crying for his mother in a really touching way. This is one of the books that one of the parts of the book that really has a moment of recognizable humanity mm -hmm. when he desires a person who is not just a mere progenitor, but someone of, of whom he is a part and would know him not as a cipher, but rather as a piece of themselves and then he gets lobotomized <laughs> yep that's the book happy endings i guess right yeah i mean i think leaving on a happy ending itself would i think would have undercut this a little bit no oh, yeah absolutely i think zimyatin i don't know i again i don't want to uh, assume anything of zimyatin's intent in this but he's pointing out that it's very easy uh he indirectly points out that it's very easy for individuals to fail like you pointed out earlier matt that uh, I may fall, and individual members of Mephi may fall, and D may be lobotomized, but the force itself fights on. Mm -hmm. Even though the forces of the one state are certain that logic will always win, the whole book, and in fact, at many points, the forces of Mephi question that. Really, will logic win? Or if we nurture a little bit of illogic, might have humanity gone further? Yeah, there's something like incalculable, something that can't quite be rationalized in behavior in general. Yeah. It's not quite as far as... Uh, Going back to your example of Notes from the Underground, a pure yeah. dedication to humanity's right to make the worst possible decision at every <laughs> single turn. Uh, but it, you can see the the kind of trail, the thought in mm -hmm. society coming into this particular work. I mean, yeah, I think you can see it leading there. I think it, it draws on that a lot. Yeah, but this is a really interesting piece of sci-fi. It can be kind of hard to follow at times, but that's, I think, at least for me, was part of the enjoyment. Uh, trying to figure out what's real and what's a uh, hallucination on D's part. And overall puts forth a lot of really interesting ideas to chew upon. And if you've read literally any other dystopian piece of fiction, you'll understand a lot. You'll start to yeah, see the, yeah. the, the cobwebs which trail out from this one. Absolutely. So uh, before we totally wrap up, Matt, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I, sometimes I try and relate my drunk meter to like the actual book, but... right book's a little depressing this week so i can't do that so i'm just gonna say i'm somewhere around a five okay you know i'm at a good level to talk about this and not be depressed that's fair what about you okay so there's a, a scene in the very end of the book i'm gonna i'm gonna do what you didn't do and relate it to the book <laughs> in a very tortured way this time after the revolution begins and d and i meet in her room for the final time before they have sex uh, i is smoking a cigarette and it's obvious that she's really really enjoying the cigarette and she's really self-satisfied in that moment 
Um, and, and I would say that's about where I am. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. overly drunk, but really self-satisfied. Just kind of at that nice, I don't know, vague four to five. Not a boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, we... <laughs> Well, we sort ourselves out on a Sunday night. What are you reading next week, Matt? Next week, unfortunately, we're going to be starting our series on several What Is To Be Done's. We're going to be starting with Chernyshevsky's What Is To Be Done, one of the most foundational pieces of the 19th century. We mentioned it earlier tonight. We mentioned it, I hope, on Notes From The Underground. Uh, just on a lot. So it, it'll be good, even though the actual literature itself was an absolute slog. It'll be an interesting discussion. So, you know... Come learn about what is, in fact, to be done. Come learn about why Chernyshevsky hated his own penis. Come learn about uh, any number of fun things. <laughs> My husband once showed me a meme, which was, uh, it's like the moral quandary about whether or not you move a train off of a track with uh, five people into a track with one person. Uh, mm. And over the top, it's written, <clears throat> writing one of the most influential novels of all time, and on the other track, <laughs> writing a dog shit novel. Uh, and then the next panel is a train car uh, drifting over multiple tracks and someone yelling, multi-track drifting, it's been achieved. Well, he kind of does that in this book. Uh, send that to me. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find it. I'll, I'll send it into the Discord. Okay. Uh, well, before we totally wrap up, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Jeff, Janice, Anne, Madeline, Daniel, Darren, Gary, Daniel, Alex, and Roland. We're collecting quite the list. It's pretty nice. Um, As you know, podcasting is not free. And as you also know, and as I painfully know, grad school does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.